Nothing like a bit of royalty-free music is there. Hello everyone and welcome to this first episode of my podcast, which I will probably end up calling Grappettos and Stilettos, the same as my blog. Hope you're having a wonderful day. Uh, This could be the start of something very new for me and I hope you enjoy it. My first guest you'll be delighted to know is the amazing Matthew Heyman. Hello everyone and welcome to the first episode of my podcast. I'm joined by the legendary Matthew Heyman. Matt, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. I'm very fine on this uh, Thursday afternoon, Friday afternoon. (laughs) Whereabouts are you in the world at the moment? Uh, I'm in uh, Flanders. I'm uh, in Mella, just near Ghent. And uh, we were just out this morning having a look at uh, the course for Flanders on Sunday. So a big week for Belgians this week. It is, isn't it? Uh, So cycling's been adapting, I'd say, pretty well throughout the pandemic. But what's it been like for you personally? Oh, a roller coaster, Um, like everybody, I think. Uh, I'm feeling pretty fortunate to be able to be back at a race and be able to have a little bit of normality, um, which a lot of people still don't have. Um, but yeah, no, last year around this time, we were very uncertain times for for my whole team actually. And, and just in racing in general. Um, and I've been pretty surprised, you know, the amount of travel that travel we do as a professional, uh, Peloton that we've been able to, you know, get most of our races done, haven't had too many cases and, and, and teams and, and organizers, everybody's been pretty responsible. So fingers crossed that, uh, the light is at the end of the tunnel and, and we can get back to even more normality soon. Absolutely. Um, Probably one of the biggest pieces of news that we've had recently, uh, yesterday actually on April Fool's Day, which probably wasn't the the best uh, day to announce something, but the Paris-Roubaix races for both the men and the women have been postponed to October. How do you think that that will make the race different to how it usually is in April? Yeah, look, first I had to double check that information a fair few times because it was coming through with some other absurd things that uh, would go on on April 1st. Um, But yeah, it was true or it is true. And uh, yeah, look, I'm disappointed because I feel like the team, the group of guys I have here um, are coming along really nicely and we're getting better as a team with every race. So it'd be nice at the moment to have it next week. I feel like we're we're on a you know, in, especially in sporting teams, when you when you get your mojo and you're, you're on a good thing, um, it's good to keep running with it. So that's a bit of a shame. Um, so hopefully we're back at the same level uh, in October. Having it a week after the World Championships, I think it'll actually be you know for the event itself, it, it's going to attract the same attention. I think it's going to be um, having it on is very important and having it a week after the World Championships that are in Belgium with those types of riders, I think we'll have a very competitive race and, and it'll live up to its expectations. Speaking of Paris-Roubaix, <laughs> yes. uh, I actually Sorry. want you to uh, take me back to your first <clears throat> edition of mm-hmm. the race. Um, what were you feeling before taking that start line for the first time? Yeah, it was a mix of, of, of going into the unknown, a bit of dread of, you know, going into the hell and you'd heard all the stories and, and everybody had told you what it was like, but very excited about 
you know, I'd already raced a lot in Belgium and raced a lot on the cobbles and felt that it was something, you know, they're, they're my type of races. So just eager to find out what it was all about and excited, but also, yeah, just knowing that it was going to be something a bit different and no other race really did measure up to it. So a bit, a bit unsure. And I, I do remember thinking, you know, I'm going to get to that velodrome whether it's lights are turned off and they've locked the gates and I have to climb over, I'm going to get to that velodrome and I'm going to ride around it. So that was definitely, you know, do the team role first and I had some good riders to ride for, but after that I was going to soldier on. Is it a sort of race where you learn something new every time you ride it? Because it seems like anything can happen at any point in the race or is it more as you do more additions, you sort of begin to understand the race more as it happens or is it just anything really? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you have to be prepared, prepared for the unknown and prepared for, for the unexpected. Um, and, and uh, yeah, I think do you, you, you finish the race and it's six hours, six and a half hours, however long it takes to get there. And then you'll go back and go over it in your head for, over and over again in the weeks afterwards and and you find that it comes down to two or three key moments uh, where you made a decision or you weren't able to move or or somebody else made a good move and so you know then you go in the next year thinking well I just can't make those mistakes again so um, yeah for a race that length and you feel like it always comes down to one or two little key moments um, uh, yeah and then you think I have to wait 12 months to have another go. So if we uh, if we turn back time to 2016. Right. It's much younger, much better looking. <laughs> you look exactly the same, I can't <laughs> lie. Like, you really do. The listeners can't see it, but I can uh, confirm. He does look the same, everyone. All right. <laughs> you broke a bone in your arm at Omloop Hep Newsblad, which was yep. coincidentally five weeks before Paris-Roubaix. And I remember at the time the pictures were going viral of you sort of putting your cast on like a ladder as you were doing intervals on Swift. How on earth did that compare to the usual preparation that you would do for Paris-Roubaix? Um, yeah, no, it was it was totally out of the ordinary. Um, and I really was doing all that not knowing if I was going to be able to ride. Um, so I was often getting off and asking myself, what, what am I even doing? Um, I rang the team once to ask if there was a spot in the Giro because um, it was it was bang on six weeks from when I when – I, and the doctors gave me six weeks to recover. And then you know, I said, well, what about Roubaix? And they just rolled their eyes, like not, not a chance. That's to be back racing. Um, yeah, and there was no real other options. And, and my, my season was based around that. I'd done months of training to – prepare for it i felt like i was going really well in news blood um before i crashed like you know um and i didn't want to waste all that effort so i kind of yeah i, I don't know what motivated me i really can't you know it, it sounds silly and if i was to advise someone else i'd probably tell them to take a bit of time off and you know look at the next goal reset you know go easy on yourself and yet um yeah, I, I decided to do that and I don't really have an explanation for why I did. Um, uh, a bit of, you know, you don't feel like you're a bike rider unless you're doing it. That's why we jump up so quick from a crash and want to get back on our bikes. Um, you know, you don't want to be injured. Uh, while I was training, I wasn't injured. 
Um, so I didn't want to be, yeah, off. And uh, just doing double sessions, uh, a session in the morning and a session at night, and I felt like, you know, uh, just, just holding my form and, and hoping. Um, but as, not only was it the training, I think when I have actually got back to Roubaix and I got to line up, um, it changed my outlook for the day and, and other years I'd put pressure on myself to, to really race well and get a result and it had to happen on that day. And because I didn't have the preparation that was really worthy of a Roubaix and I hadn't raced Flanders the weekend before, I just kind of went in having wanting to have fun and happy to be back with the guys and really just just wanting to enjoy a day in hell. In a way, that sounds like almost a, a lovely situation, I guess, if you are about to undertake six and a <laughs> half hours more of I mean, a... It's my favourite mate race and I, it would have hurt me a lot more to be watching it on TV and wishing I was there. I mean, I've done... I think I was... I was pro for how many years? I think I did seventeen Roubaix, so I only missed two in my in my career, and and they hurt to watch it on TV. Um, so I definitely wanted to be there. I remember you in the uh, in the backstage pass. Shout out to uh, Dan Jones, who yeah. was absolutely amazing in setting all of that up from the very beginning. Um, yeah. You said it'd be your fifteenth attempt at winning. <laughs> yes, it was a bit. Uh... Yeah, I don't know where that came from. I think it showed how relaxed I was. Um, probably not something I would have said on, on one of the other times if he had thrown the camera in my face. Um, you know, Dan did a great job and we were pretty comfortable with him and he was able to really just, you know, he's a, a mate of ours, so he was just a mate in the bus with a camera. And um, I kind of just threw it out there like, you know, I'm here to win and I was I was joking. But, uh, yeah, and to see that come back, I'd, I'd totally forgotten about it until... You know, he was messaging me in the days after saying, I'm, I'm still working on it, mate. I'm still, this is going to be great. This is a, I've put the right music, I've found the right music. So, um, and, and I'd totally forgotten about that throwaway line in the bus, but I think it showed just how relaxed I was and kind of carefree and just happy to be there. With the team bus itself, it seems like there was a really good, and I mean, it always does every year. It seems like now your team bike exchange but it seems like there's such a great group of guys and you all managed to gel really well together. And part of me likes to think, mm. oh, you know, it's that Australian sense of humour, everyone's so relaxed. And the way you sort of embraced Esteban Chavez is like he was an adopted sort of Australian. Mm. What is it about that sort of team environment that just seems so lovely to be embraced in? Well, he thought I was German to start with, you know that. I thought you were German. <laughs> no, Esteban did when he joined the team. He said, oh, there's this one guy who's very, very serious. And I do come across quite serious. So he was. He said, oh, I didn't know who he was. And he's very straight up and down and serious. Um, oh, look, uh, Esteban and I got on. I'm not sure why we clicked. Uh, we both joined the team at the same time. So although I knew everybody in the team or a lot of people, um, I still wasn't. I wasn't on the team from the start. So we came in at the same time. Um, so we were still a little bit new. Um, the other guys had been together for two two years before that already. Um, and I guess there was no real competition with us. I mean, we're professional athletes, or I was um, professional athletes. And, uh, you know, you're fighting everybody else and you do have that team thing. But at the end of the year, you also, you know, you measure yourself up against your teammates because they're the ones who know the best. And, you know, he was a climber and I'm a classics rider, so there was no real, you know, 
there was no competition there. So we got on pretty well and we were rooming together or we were first training camp. Uh, you know, I just felt like he was a young guy who needed a hand. and But he fits in with everybody and um, it's been great. And to see him win, a, win in Catalonia last week was, was really good. He's been through a rough period with some sickness and, you know, he lost a very close friend and, and it's been a tough time. So to see him back and enjoying and everybody in the world gets to see that smile again uh, was nice. I think uh, just like your Roubaix win, it always hits the cycling community. It strikes you as a win that's extremely popular across everyone, no matter who you are. Uh, yeah, I, it, it was uh, going back to Australia, I guess, was um, a bit of an eye-opener for me to find out how many Australians were, were sitting up in the middle of the night and wanted to tell me their stories about you know, how they woke up the, the, the wife and kids or, you know, um, you know, were screaming in, in the house at two o'clock in the morning. And, you know, I've always been very passionate about Roubaix, but I didn't realise that um, a lot of other people, you know, who've never raced it are also passionate about that race. And in Paris-Roubaix itself, you know, we've been going for about five hours. You get to the final sort of 15 kilometres you're in the decisive group with Van Mark, Boone and Stannard. What are you thinking in that moment? Or are you very concentrated on the race itself? Um, I guess, yeah, there, were, there are a lot of thoughts. And, and uh, uh, I mean, when I got, I got tailed off there a little bit um, by Ian Stannard, well, he came underneath me in a corner and, and um, I straight-lined the corner a bit and got tailed off. And, and when I got back on then, I started to realise maybe, that, you know, I felt like I was probably the weakest in that group until that point. And um, and I also felt like my race was over at that point. But, you know, I was, you know, riding high and, you know, but this is kind of what I am expect of myself. Um, you know, I'm not of the level of these other guys the between them and won many, many races. Um, but then I got back on and my confidence grew a bit that actually, hey, maybe these guys have had a harder race than I expected. I've been in the break all day. I'm still feeling all right. And, and I was really kind of protecting myself from, from the distance because of only being on the home trainer. So I was waiting constantly for the wheels to fall off. I was waiting for me just to, to run out of legs. Um, and it was kind of like, well, it hasn't happened now. Um, we've only got 10K to go, so I might make it. Um, and, yeah, getting back on, and, and that changed my confidence. But I, I, I don't think I was oh, – well, I didn't get very nervous in the final, as I would expect, as nervous as I had been in other times when I was riding for a, for a 15th place or an 8th place or a 10th place. Um, where I was, you know, kind of guessing, second guessing everything, choosing gears and thinking, overthinking everything. And I really was just kind of enjoying being there and, and racing. And I mean, the last the last 5Ks were pretty exciting of just guys that were really quite tired, just hitting each other and going <laughs> and just throwing it all out there. So, um, but yeah, I, a part of me feels like it was also, also you know, I'd, because I wasn't making many decisions, it was kind of really not me. I was just kind of doing, so I was just in the moment. Yeah, there was a there was a cheeky attack from you at about two kilometers to go, and you got distance on Tom Boone, and, and I remember sat yeah. there watching, and I was like, "Is this a is this a breakaway victory <laughs> that I'm about to watch?" It was a wind up. Um, 
Yeah, look, and, and that's not something that I, you know, like um, feel like I would normally do. Uh, it was a spur of the moment. I, I wasn't really making decisions. I wasn't really protecting myself, and I just kind of went for it. Um, it felt like the right thing to do, you know, once everybody else had done their attack, I'll go over the top. Um, but that's what you do when you've when you've got no cares in the world and you're racing a few mates to a to this to the entry of the you know to a street sign. Um, not when you're trying to win Roubaix. So I was definitely riding carefree in the final. I think one of the most brilliant aspects about Roubaix is the fact that there's a velodrome that you circle around after kilometers and kilometers on the cobbles. Do you enjoy that aspect of getting the little track element at the end? Yeah, I think it just it's I think Roubaix is an iconic race, but it also has a number of, you know, a number of those little th- things attached to it like the finish on the velodrome. It's it's unique. Um earlier in my career as a professional, there's a couple of other races that have done it. Um but that's definitely, you know, the cobblestone, the showers, there's all these little things that just that Roubaix seems to have that are, you know, um, a little bit different to other races. And, yeah, it's very special to ride in there. It's very special. Um, if you go back to that velodrome any other time of the year, it's uh, pretty run down. Uh, it's a pretty sad-looking place um, in a very industrial city. Um, but then on one day a year, um, you know, the, the lights are on, the crowd's there, and, and it just looks amazing. And whether you're winning, and, you know, I've, I've finished last before in Roubaix, and it's always a sight for sore eyes to get on that velodrome and, and do a lap and it doesn't matter where you are, you feel pretty content that you've made it to a finish. Um, and, and, and the crowds are amazing. They, they really do support everybody and, and you really get that feeling coming in. So I can't remember enjoying the crowds when I won, but I definitely have on other occasions just enjoying, you know, kind of doing that last lap to say, yep, I've ticked off, I've finished Roubaix. When you were in 2016, I believe it was Robbie McEwen, and you entered the velodrome with Tom Boonen, and he was like, "Matthew Heyman has won two professional." I'm not going to do. I'm not going to do the accent. It, was, it would be horrific for everyone. Uh, he won two professional races. Tom Boonen had won 109, and I think the absolute magic of that final lap around the velodrome, even when you had Seth Van Mark and Standard coming along on the side, you it felt that there was just something different about this, and you were going to win. Was that how you felt? <laughs> um, yeah, uh, look, um, well, it was Matt Keenan that's, that said that, another commentator, and he's the stats man. He knows all the stats. Robbie said if if Matt Heyman knows what's good for him, he won't do a turn. He, he'll do a turn with Tom Boonen now. That's it, so, yeah. So, so Robbie's more about the tactics and uh, Matt's about the stats. Um, I think I've won a few more races than Matt gives me credit for, but anyway, we'll, we'll leave that there. Um, I believe you. Yeah. Uh, look, yeah, it was it was a strange. Uh, I, I really was just in that mode of racing. Uh, I broke away there, or we broke away, and Tom was with me, and and I did, um, I did swing over, and I didn't give him a turn, and and you know it was a dream of mine just to finish on the podium, and and other years I'd come pretty close. I've been in the final groups that and and been with guys in in the last five k that have finished on the podium, and just looked at those guys in the middle of the track while you're getting interviewed and, and they're on the podium at Roubaix. So that was, you know, I felt that was, if everything went right, I could one day stand on, on that podium, but I'd have to have a super race. And, you know, we've seen other guys, whether it's um, Magnus Baxter or Sivas Carnarvon, and there's other guys that, you know, that 
maybe not the the guys that win week in week out. They're not your Cancelaros or your Boonins, and and they've got there before. Um, um, so that was kind of in the back of my head. But the, when I came with into the velodrome with Tom, I didn't just commit to getting second and ride a full lap, which I could have easily done, and nobody would have probably. You know, they probably would have said, oh, well, he, he was a guy that had a chance of getting second or getting fifth and, you know, he got he got second. But uh, for some reason I swung up and there must have been the self-confidence there to let all the others come back. And by the time we got to the bell, there was five of us again and we'd let three other guys back into the race. Um, and then my thought was if I lead out, they all have to come around me. And, and that does go back to track racing when I was a – a 15 year old in Canberra and racing on the velodrome and so I had a bit of experience from the velodrome and took some height and thought okay lead out on dead legs you've got to go too wide and go the long way around maybe maybe one or two will get around but if I'm sure if I lead out I'll, I'll be on the podium and and uh, I remember just looking under my arms up the front straight and they he was coming but not quick enough did it take you a, a moment for it to sink in when you when you got off the bike? Yeah, I think you've seen the footage. So uh, it went uh, from from this super confident guy that was riding like he was somebody else, uh, riding like Robbie McEwen would ride, um, which is not a position I'd normally be in, you know, in a final. So I was just doing what I thought you were supposed to do. Um, to then kind of really snapping back and, you know, I threw my arms up and, and – kind of thought okay I have one haven't I I wasn't really sure and just trying to make sure you know it wasn't a dream and it wasn't someone up the road because um, it didn't didn't feel real um, but yeah then to come around and have the the team there um, the press guys the soigneurs Dan um, and then to have you know Tom even congratulate me and say you know well done um, that that meant a lot too so he just missed out on winning his fifth and being all-time record holder. Um, he had to answer everybody in the press why he didn't beat, you know, a guy he'd normally beat in a sprint 10 times out of 10. How could that happen? Um, so, you know, for him to just be gracious in defeat, that, that meant a lot as well. Absolutely. And uh, where is your cobblestone back at home, <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing? Yeah, it is at home. Um, we have an alcove in the living room with that has a nice little spotlight on it. And um, but uh, yeah, I, I sometimes you know I remember the first year I'd put the light on even if it wasn't dark outside to make sure it it was in the spotlight. And uh, I'd look at it quite a lot. But uh, nowadays, the kids' Lego goes in front or on top of and uh, gets pushed aside. So um, if somebody if somebody makes something good at school. The rock gets pushed down the other end and because it has prime <laughs> position. So, which is kind of, you know, I realized by probably a week after Roubaix that uh, nothing had changed at home. Didn't matter how many Roubaix's you win. You're, st- you're still just dad to them. I'm still just bottom of the heap, is what I was trying to say. <laughs> is, it, is it quite heavy? I imagine it is. I don't, think, is I don't think I could very... lift it normally, let alone after a race. It is very heavy. Um, I think I've weighed it uh, between 15 and 20 kilos. I think it's about 16 or 17 kilos. Um, and it's quite awkward, you know. It was, it's sitting there on the podium when you get there. So you've got, you, you didn't really have a, an expectation and then all of a sudden um, the moment comes and it's a bit hard once you've 
just beaten Tom Bonin in the velodrome in Roubaix to stumble and not be able to pick the rock up. So um, I went to grab it and I thought, well, it can't fail now. So heave ho. Oh, God, and, um, don't let me drop uh, it. <laughs> yeah, then ends up resting on the shoulder because it's pretty heavy. We're not known for our upper body cyclists. It's all right. I'm not either. <laughs> So now you're a you're a DS a director sportif with Team yeah. Bike Exchange. What is it that made you want to stay on and do that role in your cycling career? Um, yeah. Look, I, I love racing. I love bike racing. It's something I've been around for years. It's you know I have a lot of knowledge um, about racing, and and there was a a feeling that I might be able to add value and and help help guys um, going forward and. It was a time for me, um, I'll call the role DS now. I mean, when I first took over, we were looking at all different aspects of how I could bring value to the team. And um, once I retired, you know, what, what could I do? What different jobs could I do to, to not just leave? And it, it fit in with me to try and work out what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. Um, and that's kind of morphed into to more pretty much a DS role. Um, and... Uh, you know, this time of year is just, you know, it's very stressful uh, for me um, trying to help the boys and I uh, feel for them and trying to do your best to make sure that they get the best results that they've trained so hard for. Um, and this is really the, the races that I know, like the back of my hand. And, yeah, ultimately just wanting to, to give back to the guys that I've raced with and maybe as the years go on and those guys move on and, I don't know, help the younger riders um, try and get a leg up and learn quickly something that i uh i also wanted to talk with you about and i'm gonna guess that it was probably dan jones's idea do you remember when you did all those music videos with the team <laughs> yeah I, it was a bit before some of the big hits came before my time i was i think i got quite lucky there so i think call um, me maybe just missed you yes i think that was a volta uh the year before i joined the team so I was definitely aware by signing a contract with this team that um, I, I may have to appear in some music videos. I think I got a start in um, the South African one we did. Yes, the um, Bruno Mars one. The yes, yes, I think. So. Uptown Funk. Yes. So there hasn't been one for a little while now. Um, Dan's, Dan's back in Australia, so he's, he's not doing the videos anymore. Um, but uh, it definitely put us on a map and I think um, – you know, I think a lot of other teams have seen that uh, just it, it was nice to be in that team and come out of the bus and people have an idea of your personality and, and, and who you were. And the comment often is that everyone looks the same with a helmet and glasses on. Um, and, you know, to, to have people just, you know, yell out nicknames when people come out of the bus, not even know your real name, just know whatever you get called on the backstage pass. Um, you know, that's nice. And I think uh, the fans really appreciated our honesty and openness. Um, and uh, and Dan was always respectful in being a bit cringy sometimes, but never overstepping the mark. And, and he'd always, you know, check with us if he wasn't sure. And, and um, But, it, you know, it's pretty raw and that's just how it is, you know. You probably uh, can't do this too much when coronavirus is still ongoing. Uh, but do you wish there was that interaction between the teams that we could see as well, because you did a series um, and it was Sky versus OGE at the time. Yeah. Do you wish that 
there was more of that element as well and we could see sort of teams competing against each other off the bike yeah i think i think uh people like it it's, it's about coming up with something and i think it you know um it needs to be authentic and and needs to be you know kind of kind of real in a way um and there is there's a lot of these guys go home and they'll be training together offsite in wherever they live whether it's in in spain or in new york in uh, monaco um, a lot of these guys get on and have different teammates and there's a healthy respect for each other and um, yeah maybe it's something we once once everybody's vaccinated we can get back to um, doing some more of those I don't know last year with uh, uh, I think we had a bit of banter between us and Greg van Avermaet after uh, Whitey had trouble pronouncing his name a few times oh bless him <laughs> yeah so it still comes up he can't get it right so what would you say is your favorite memory when you look back on your cycling career as a rider? Oh, look, I mean, to say Roubaix would probably be too easy. I mean, it is. Um, ultimately, I, I think I've been through a few times like what, what races I've really enjoyed. And when I go back and look at those, the ones I really, really enjoyed, um, the common theme is that we won them. So as much as you do enjoy, you know, um, winning with your friends and, and being a team effort, when I go back and look at them, they're always the ones we won. I had a better time. I had a, I had a great time. So um, some of the tour down unders, winning there under pressure when, when you need to use the whole team, um, going Commonwealth Games, riding for your country, world championships, uh, winning the world championships. Um, and Mendrizio with Kid Evans, um, that that was pretty special. Um, and you know we won a lot of races with Simon Guerin. So uh, the 2015 Volta with Caleb winning a stage, Esteban winning stages, and having a couple of us, you know, uh, Simon Guerin's and Daryl Impey uh, and myself being the older guys there, um, and just you know seeing those guys really you know come of age, that was pretty special as well. Just as we get to the. Uh the end of the podcast episode I'm aware you're a busy man but what is what is something about yourself that people don't know but you'd like them to know oh um I'm a pretty open book actually um pretty much what you see is what you get um well that is a tough one oh you've really stumped me there um take your time honestly oh really uh oh look what the people wouldn't know about me no i can fight i guess I, I i guess uh the the teammates my teammates know but uh people often are surprised that i can get get pretty fired up and pretty angry in a in a race and um you know uh can really i've got i had a short temper as a child and uh when when push comes to shove it, it 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 there's you know some things that i've been embarrassed about and have had to apologize about uh to people but uh so yeah i think i come across pretty cool calm and collected but uh in a race situation sometimes there's only so much i'll take there you go my last question for you if you could change one rule in cycling what would it be and why Change your super tuck back because it started yesterday. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, oh, that's uh, that's just at the moment. 
one rule i think just safety and i mean it's it's, it's there's no one rule i mean uh my first race last year was tour of poland after a pandemic um and to finish that race and just there was an eerie silence the race radios were quiet the boys weren't saying anything um just we knew that it was a bad crash and nobody wanted to be around that so you know these guys are there doing this and, and we all love it nobody would change a thing um but we all just want to do it safely. So that, that would just be anything that's any rule that was going to make bike racing safer that I'd be for. And I'm not sure the super tuck does it. I think, I think that's something we can all agree on. Well, thank you very much for your, for your time, Matthew. I'll let you uh, no say goodbye to the listeners that are probably just my mom and dad. <laughs> no worries. All right. Uh, and good luck uh, with your studies further or finishing thereof. Thank you so much. Uh, Good luck this weekend. Thank you very much. I hope you're watching, supporting. Oh, well, I, uh, I can't be showing bias now, can I? Well, you know, can't go for the big three, can you? Oh, you're right. I'll have to. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, I'm kidding. Uh, all right. Michael Matthews all the way. Let's, we, we need to round out the five. We've won all other mon- monuments. So let's hope that uh, Bling can bring it home. Let's go, Bling. Thank you, all Matt. Right. Okay, bye.